Last week, you heard a short snippet from Jennifer Hillier's Things We Do in the Dark. Today, we're bringing you an extended excerpt from the audiobook, Keep Listening, to meet Paris Peralta, caught red-handed in her own bathroom with her husband dead in the tub behind her. Mrs. Peralta, drop the razor, the detective commanded again. Paris finally dropped it. The steel blade landed on the tile with a dull clang, and the uniformed officers moved in on her in a swarm. One of them slapped the cuffs on her, and the detective informed her of her rights. As they led her out of the bedroom and down the stairs, Paris wondered how she would possibly explain this. Years ago, the last time this happened, she didn't have to explain it at all. I'm sorry, but would you mind turning down the air conditioning? Paris's nipples are pressing hard against her forearms like ball bearings. Though she'd lived in Seattle for almost 20 years now, the Canadian in her still can't break the habit of apologizing before asking for something. I'm sorry, it's just really cold back here. The officer in the passenger seat pushes a button on the dashboard repeatedly until the cold air eases up. Thank you she says. The officer turns around. Anything else we can do for you? He asks. Need a mint? Want to stop and grab a coffee? He's not asking real questions, so she doesn't respond. On some level, Paris understands that she's in shock and that the full extent of the situation hasn't hit her yet. At least her self-preservation instincts have kicked in. She knows she's been arrested she knows she's going to be booked, and she knows she needs to keep her mouth shut and call a lawyer at the first opportunity. But still, it feels like she's watching all this happen from the outside, as if she's in a movie where someone who looks like her is about to be charged with murder. This feeling of disassociation, a word she learned as a kid, is something that happens to her whenever she's in situations of extreme stress. Disassociation was her mind's way of protecting her from the traumas that were happening to her body. While this isn't what's happening now, the feeling of separation between her brain and physical form tends to happen whenever she feels vulnerable and unsafe. Right now, the life she knows, the life she's built, is being threatened. Paris can't float away, though. She needs to stay present if she's going to make it through this, so she focuses on her breathing. As she tells her yoga students, whatever is happening, you can always come back to your breath. Constricting her throat just a little, she takes a slow, deep inhale, holds it, then exhales. It makes a slight hissing sound, as if she's trying to fog up the car window, and the detective's eyes dart toward her in the rearview mirror once again. After a few ocean breaths, ujjayi breaths, Paris is more clear-headed, more here, and she tries to process how the hell she ended up in the back of a cop car on her way to jail. She watches enough TV to know that the police always assume it's the spouse. Of course, it hadn't helped one bit that Zoe, Jimmy's assistant, was the one pointing the finger and screaming herself hoarse. She murdered him! She murdered him! Oh my God, she's a murderer! They think she killed Jimmy. 
and now the rest of the world will too. Because that's how it looks when you're let out of your home in handcuffs with blood on your clothes as news of your celebrity husband's death ripples through the crowd of onlookers snapping photos and recording videos of your arrest. The irony is, the crowd was already conveniently in place outside the house well before Zoe called the cops. Paris and Jimmy live on Queen Anne Hill, right across the street from Cary Park, which boasts the best views of Seattle. It's a popular spot for both locals and tourists to take photos of the city skyline and Mount Rainier, and the crowd today was like any other, except the cameras were pointing toward the house instead of the skyline. And just like there hadn't been time to put on another shirt, there had been no opportunity to put on different shoes. Paris heard someone yell, Nice slippers! as soon as she stepped outside, but it didn't sound like a compliment. The neighbors on the street were all outside, too. Bob and Elaine from next door were standing at the end of their driveway, their faces filled with shock and horror at the sight of her. Since they didn't call out or offer to help in any way, they must have already heard what happened. They must already think Paris is guilty. They're supposed to be her friends. She can imagine the headlines already. Jimmy Peralta, the Prince of Poughkeepsie, found dead at 68. Though Jimmy's highly rated sitcom had ended its 10-year run more than two decades earlier, he would forever be known for his starring role as the son of a bakery owner in The Prince of Poughkeepsie, which won over a dozen Emmys and propelled Jimmy into movie stardom until he retired seven years ago. Paris doesn't have to be a publicist to predict that the news of her husband's death will be even bigger than the headline-making, multi-million-dollar deal Jimmy signed with Quan when he decided to make his comeback. Even Paris would think this was a juicy story if it wasn't happening to her. She continues to focus on her breathing, but her mind refuses to settle. None of this feels right. While she had no illusions that she and Jimmy would grow old together, she thought they had more time. In the two years they'd been married, they'd established an easy routine. Paris worked at the yoga studio six days a week, and Jimmy always had things going on but Sundays were their day together. They should be having a lazy brunch right now at the nearby diner, where the owner always saved them a table by the window. Pancakes and bacon for Jimmy, waffles with strawberries for Paris. Afterward, they might head into Fremont for the farmer's market, or take a drive to Snohomish to do some antiques hunting. More often than not, though, they'd head home, where Jimmy would putter in the garden, trimming this and weeding that, while she cracked open a paperback and sat by the pool. But this is not a normal Sunday. This is a fucking nightmare. Paris should have known it would end like this, because there's no such thing as happily ever after when you run away from one life to start a whole new one. Karma has come for her. A feather from her ridiculous slippers tickles the top of her foot. When she received them for her birthday last month, not her real birthday, but the one that's listed on her ID, they were funny and cute. Her instructors at the studio had all chipped in to buy her the pair of seriously expensive Italian designer slides made out of pink ostrich feathers. They were supposed to stay at the studio so she'd have something to walk around in between classes, but she couldn't resist bringing them home to show Jimmy. She knew he would laugh, and he did. The slippers aren't funny now. 
All they'll do is play into the narrative the media keeps trying to create, which is that Paris is a rich, self-entitled asshole. She managed to fly under the radar for 19 years after she escaped Toronto, only to have it all undone when Jimmy's trusty assistant Zoe included their wedding photo with the press release about the streaming deal. Zoe couldn't understand why Paris was so upset, but until that day, most people hadn't even known that Jimmy Peralta had gotten married again. Paris had been living in blissful anonymity with her retired husband, and then it all went to hell. As Zoe would say, the optics are terrible. Paris is Jimmy's fifth wife, and she's almost 30 years younger than he is. While the age difference was never a problem for Jimmy, why would it be? It makes Paris look like a gold-digging bitch who was just waiting for her husband to die. And now, he's dead. Chapter 2 the desk clerk at the King County Jail asks for her phone, but Paris doesn't have it with her. As far as she remembers, it's still on the nightstand in her bedroom in the house that's now a crime scene. All personal items need to be bagged and placed in the bin, the clerk informs her. Like the detective that brought her here, he hasn't stopped staring since she was brought in. That includes your jewelry. All Paris has is her wedding ring. Jimmy had offered to buy her an engagement ring, too, but she declined, insisting she would never wear it while teaching yoga anyway. In the end, he talked her into an eternity band crafted with 15 fancy pink oval-shaped diamonds. The retail cost was an astounding $250,000, but the jeweler had offered Jimmy a discount if they were willing to have the ring photographed and publicized. Paris declined that, too. I don't want the publicity she told Jimmy. I'm really okay with a simple gold band. Not a fucking chance. Jimmy had a short conversation with the jeweler and slapped down his black Amex. Because he was Jimmy Peralta, he got the discount anyway. Paris Peralta. The desk clerk says her name with a smirk as he types on his keyboard, drawing out the syllables. Paris Peralta. My wife's gonna shit herself when I tell her who I booked today. She was a big fan of the Prince of Poughkeepsie. Never liked the show myself. I always thought Jimmy Peralta was an ass. Have some respect, officer. The detective is standing beside her, elbow to elbow, as if she thinks there's a chance Paris might bolt. She tosses her head, and the tip of her ponytail flicks Paris's bare arm. The man is dead. Paris pulls off her wedding ring and passes it through the window. Beside her, she hears the detective mutter under her breath, Jesus, it's pink. The desk clerk examines the ring closely before sealing it in a small plastic bag. He then drops it into the plastic bin where it lands with an audible smack. Inwardly, she winces. The value of that ring, Paris thinks, is probably triple what you earned last year. Outwardly, she maintains her composure. She's not going to give anyone a story to sell to the tabloids. Instead, she makes eye contact with him through the smudged plexiglass window and stares him down. As she predicts, he's a weasel, and his gaze drops back to his computer. Sign this. He shoves her inventory list through the window. There's only one item on it, 
Ring, diamond, pink. Paris scrawls her signature. Another officer comes out from behind the desk and waits expectantly. The detective turns to Paris. She probably did introduce herself at the time of the arrest, but her name eludes Paris now, assuming she even heard it in the first place. We'll need your clothes, the detective says. Slippers, too. They'll give you something else to put on, and then I'll come and talk to you, okay? I'd like to call my lawyer, Paris says. The detective isn't surprised, but she does seem disappointed. You can do that after you're processed. A buzzer sounds, and Paris is led through a set of doors and into a small, brightly lit room. She's directed to take her clothes off in the corner behind a blue curtain. She undresses quickly, removing everything but her underwear, and puts on the sweatshirt, sweatpants, socks, and rubber slides they've given her. It's a relief to get the blood-stained clothes off and change into footwear that doesn't resemble a cat toy. Everything is stamped with the letters D-O-C. She's fingerprinted and photographed. Her hair is a matted mess, but it's not like she can borrow a hairbrush. She looks straight at the camera and lifts her chin. Jimmy once said that it's near impossible to not look like a criminal in a mugshot. He would know. He was arrested twice for driving under the influence and once for assault after shoving a heckler in Las Vegas after a show. In all three mugshots, he looked guilty as hell. The processing done, she's led to an elevator for a quick ride down one floor. The young officer escorting her shoots furtive glances in her direction from time to time, but he doesn't say a word until they get to the holding cell. In a voice that squeaks, followed by a quick throat clear, he directs her to go inside. As soon as she steps in, the bars close and lock with a clang. And just like that, Paris is in jail. It's both better and worse than she always imagined, and she has imagined it many times. It's bigger than she expected, and there's only one other person in here, a woman who's currently passed out on the opposite side of the cell. One bare leg hangs off the edge of the bench, and the soles of her bare feet are filthy. Her tight neon yellow dress is covered in stains from an indeterminate substance, but at least she wasn't forced to change her clothes. Whatever she's being held for, it's not murder. Though the cell appears clean, the harsh fluorescent lights show smears from whatever was recently mopped up. Based on the lingering odors, it was both urine and vomit. The walls look sticky and are covered in a dingy shade of beige paint the color of weak tea. And there's a camera mounted in one corner of the ceiling. At the back of the cell, right beside the telephone anchored to the wall, is a plastic-covered sign that lists the phone numbers of three different bail bond companies. With any luck, she won't need them. She picks up the handset and punches in one of the few phone numbers she has memorized. Pick up, pick up, pick up. Voicemail. Shit. She hears her own voice encouraging her to leave a message. Henry, it's Paris, she says quietly. I'm going to try your cell. I'm in trouble. She hangs up, waits for the dial tone, and calls the second number she knows by heart. This, too, goes to voicemail. A few feet away, her cellmate sits up, her greasy hair falling around her oily face. 
she regards Paris with bleary, mascara-smeared raccoon eyes. I know you. Her words are thick and slurred. Even from a few feet away, Paris can smell her, an aroma like rotting food in a whiskey distillery. I've seen you before. You're like a famous person. Paris pretends not to hear her. You're that chick who married that old guy. The woman blinks, trying to focus. When Paris doesn't respond, she says, Oh, okay. I get it. You're a fucking princess. Too good to talk to me. Well, fuck you, princess. She lies back down. Ten seconds later, her face is slack and her mouth falls open. There's a schoolhouse clock on the wall outside the cell, and Paris waits exactly four and a half minutes before picking up the phone again. This time, someone answers immediately. Ocean breath yoga? Henry. Relief floods through Paris at the sound of her business partner's voice. Thank God. Holy shit, P, are you okay? Henry's voice is filled with concern. I just heard about Jimmy. Oh, honey, I'm so sorry, I can't believe it. Henry, they've arrested me. She can't believe she's saying the words. I'm in a holding cell at the King County Jail. I saw the arrest. It's such bullshit. You saw it? It's on the news? On the news, honey, it's on TikTok. She hears some background noise and then hears a door shut, which means Henry has taken the cordless phone into the office. One of the tourists at the park filmed your arrest and uploaded it. It's currently the number one trending video. Of course, this isn't surprising, but hearing Henry say it makes it all the more real. Paris swallows down the panic and reminds herself that there will be plenty of time to fall apart later. Henry, listen, she says. I need you to call Elsie Dixon for me. Jimmy's friend? The lawyer who sings show tunes at all your parties? That's the one. I don't have my phone, so I don't have her number. I'll Google her law office. She won't be in. It's Sunday. But if you look in the desk, there might be a business card with her cell. Ask her to come down to the jail right away, okay? I don't see a card. She can hear Henry rifling through the drawers. Don't worry, I'll figure something out. I thought she was in litigation. She started her career as a public defender, Paris says. And she's the only lawyer I know. God, P, Henry says, sounding genuinely stunned. I can't believe you're in jail. Is it like in the movies? She looks around. More or less, but bleaker. Can I bring you anything? A pillow, a book, a shank? He's trying to make her laugh, but the best she can manage is a snort. I love you. Just track Elsie down, okay? And maybe you could let the instructors know what's going on? P. They're saying... A pause. They're saying you killed Jimmy. I know that's not possible because I know you. You're not a murderer. I appreciate that, Paris says. And after saying goodbye, they hang up. Henry has always been a supportive friend, and he's loyal to the core. But he doesn't know her. Not really. Nobody does. Chapter 3
Thanks to the wonders of sensory adaptation, Paris has gone nose-blind and can no longer smell the various odors that assaulted her when she first entered the holding cell. Unfortunately, she can't say the same about the noises. She sits on the bench with her hands in her lap, doing her best to ignore her cellmate's snores mixing with the random chatter wafting in from the other cells. Everything is going to be fine. Elsie will be here soon and she'll know exactly what to do, because Elsie Dixon is a lawyer and that's what lawyers do. Except she's not just a lawyer. Elsie is also Jimmy's best friend. The two of them met in high school 50 years ago, which makes their friendship 11 years older than Paris. There will be no question where the woman's loyalties lie. And if she believes there's the slightest chance that Paris murdered her dearest friend, Elsie will not show up today. Or ever. She hopes Elsie shows up. In the meantime, there's nothing to do but wait. And without a phone or a book to distract herself, all there is to do is think. And the longer she thinks, the more the pain of Jimmy's death tries to fight its way in. Paris doesn't want to feel it. Not here and not now, because she doesn't know how to feel the depth of her grief while also saving herself from the mess she's now in. She closes her eyes. Even if she didn't kill her husband, it sure as hell looks like she did. The part that nobody could ever seem to accept is that Paris actually loved Jimmy very much. But it wasn't necessarily romantic love, and that's the part that bothers people. Apparently, you're only supposed to marry someone you're head over heels for, someone you can't get enough of, someone you can't imagine your life without. By that definition, what she and Jimmy had wouldn't be considered love at all. Their feet were always on solid ground. They probably spent more time apart than they did together. And of course they could live without each other. Please. Jimmy had lived a whole 65 years before he met Paris, achieving a level of success most comedians would never reach. Paris was 36 when she met Jimmy, and was fine being on her own. She was an old soul. He was young at heart. Their relationship worked. And yet, all anyone could see, the press, Jimmy's friends, and especially Elsie, was the 29-year age difference. We're good together, don't you think? Jimmy had said to her during lunch one random Wednesday. They'd been seeing each other for about nine months. Have you ever thought about getting married? To who? To me, you dope. She almost choked on the pastrami on rye they were sharing. Jimmy wasn't capable of eating a sandwich that didn't include deli meat. Are you proposing? She asked. I guess I am. It wasn't romantic. Jimmy wasn't built that way, and neither was she. They were two adults making a decision to do life together, and that was enough for both of them. They got married in Kauai three months later, at sunset, in an intimate ceremony on the beach. Jimmy's good friend, a big-time Hollywood director whose own wife was younger than Paris, flew the small group there on his Gulf Stream. Elsie was there. She came solo, as she'd never found anyone special after her second marriage ended a decade earlier. And so were Henry and his longtime partner, Brent. Bob and Elaine Cavanaugh from next door were invited, too. And, of course, Zoe. 
The thought of Jimmy's frizzy-haired assistant makes Paris want to stab something. Peralta, your lawyer's here. She opens her eyes to see the same young officer from earlier unlocking the doors to the cell. Somehow three hours have passed. Considering that Jimmy's oldest friend only lives 20 minutes away from the courthouse, Elsie sure took her time getting here. But at least she's here. And the officer said, your lawyer, which hopefully means Elsie is here to help. Garza, the officer says in a louder voice. Hearing her name, Paris's cellmate wakes up again. You made bail, let's go. Yawning, the woman stands and waggles her fingers at Paris. Her nails are painted the same tennis ball yellow as her dress. She still seems drunk, and she nearly collides with Elsie, who steps aside just in time. Elsie's nose wrinkles at the other woman's smell. Bye, princess, she says over her shoulder before disappearing down the hallway. Finally, the lawyer is permitted to enter. Elsie Dixon is only 5'2", but she has the personality of someone six feet tall. Her silver hair is cut in a chin-length bob, her signature style, and she's dressed as if she's on her way to a ladies' brunch, if the brunch was on a tropical cruise. Her pink pumps match her drapey pink blouse and floral skirt, and her chunky turquoise statement necklace complements her blue eyes. This is a normal outfit for her. Elsie's eyes are red-rimmed and swollen. She doesn't say hello or ask Paris how she's doing. She flicks a speck of dirt off the bench before taking a seat. I asked for an interview room, but they're all full. The older woman speaks briskly. So we'll have to talk here. Even though we're alone, keep your voice low and your head down at all times. You never know who's listening. Thank you for coming, Paris says quietly. Elsie doesn't answer. Instead, she opens her briefcase and takes out a lined notepad, her reading glasses, and an elegant black and gold pen with the name of her firm stamped on the side. Elsie is a partner at Strathroy, Oakwood, and Strauss, and while she's no longer a criminal defense attorney, she used to be. She got her start working as a public defender for a few years before switching over to private practice. She's now in litigation, and Jimmy has always said she's fierce in court. Paris isn't sure how much Elsie can help with her situation, but she's grateful the lawyer at least showed up. The other woman has always been fiercely protective of Jimmy, and she was suspicious of Paris from the beginning. The night she and Elsie first met, Elsie had asked outright whether Jimmy's new and much younger girlfriend was just in it for the green card. The woman was on her third glass of Chardonnay at the time, but still. It's like it didn't even occur to her that I'm already a U.S. citizen, Paris had fumed to Jimmy later. Would she have asked me that if I was white? She asked you that because she's jealous. Jimmy moved a lock of hair off her face. Full transparency, she and I dated back in high school. I was a class clown, she was the school valedictorian, and I broke her heart when I moved to L.A. after graduation. She's never nice to any of my girlfriends at first. But she'll come around. She always does. Over time, Paris and Elsie learned to tolerate each other, especially once they discovered they were on the same page about two important things. Both were concerned about Jimmy's comeback at the age of 68, though for very different reasons, and both completely blamed Zoe for the fact that it was happening. If Paris can get Elsie to believe that she didn't kill Jimmy, she might have a shot at getting everyone else to believe it too.
I didn't murder Jimmy, she finally blurts, unable to stand the silence any longer. If I thought you did, Elsie says calmly, I wouldn't be here. Paris exhales, slumping back against the wall with relief. But her hair catches on something sticky, so she straightens up again. Elsie clicks her pen, tests the ink. She checks her reading glasses and uses the hem of her blouse to wipe away a smudge. Her hands won't stop moving, as if she's channeling everything she's feeling into them, as if she's afraid to be still because it will force her to fully process that something terrible has happened. Because something terrible has. Elsie, I'm so sorry. We don't have much time, so let's talk about all that later, okay? Unlike her hands, Elsie's voice is steady. Right now I need you to answer all my questions as accurately as you can. We're meeting with Detective Kellogg in ten minutes. Has she tried to question you without me here? I asked to call a lawyer as soon as I got here, Paris says. Elsie, Jimmy had... Elsie puts a hand up. Save it for later, just let me do my job. I need you to answer all my questions. Paris shuts up. Have you talked to anyone since you were arrested? No. What about since you were brought in? No. What about little Miss Sunshine, the woman who just left? I haven't said anything to anyone. Good. Elsie's voice turns brisk again. Okay. You've been arrested on suspicion of murder, but that's not a formal charge. The case is too high profile, so they can't afford to make mistakes. From what I've read in the arrest report, everything they have is circumstantial. You were married to Jimmy. You live in that house. It's normal and expected that you would be in the bathroom and touch things. Now I want you to think hard. When did you discover Jimmy was dead? Last night, Paris says. I had just gotten back from Vancouver. What time? Uh, two, maybe two thirty in the morning. Very late. Did you drive or fly? I drove. So you crossed the border around midnight. That sounds about right. Elsie scratches notes into her pad. And then what? When I got home, I noticed the alarm wasn't set. But that's not unusual, as Jimmy can't be bothered half the time. You know how he is. Elsie nods without looking up. I went straight upstairs to get ready for bed. Jimmy always wants to know when I'm home, no matter what time it is, so I went down the hall to his bedroom. His bedroom? Yes, his bedroom. Elsie raises an eyebrow. You sleep in different rooms? We do. When did that start? It's what we've always done, Paris says. Neither of us sleeps well with another person in the bed. He gets hot, so he's constantly shifting around, and the slightest movement wakes me up. Jimmy would be mortified if anyone knew their sleeping arrangements, but it wasn't a big deal. What she just told Elsie is true. They both preferred sleeping alone. It didn't mean anything, but people will assign meaning to everything. So you went into his bedroom, Elsie says. Was the door open or closed? I can't remember. Think. Paris has never seen Elsie in lawyer mode, and frankly, she's a little scary. 
It's hard to reconcile this version of her with the one Paris usually sees. At Paris and Jimmy's anniversary party a month ago, the woman was draped across a grand piano with a glass of wine in one hand and a microphone in the other singing, If Ever I Would Leave You, from Camelot. The door was slightly open, Paris says. I don't think I turned the knob. I just pushed. Continue? I saw the bathroom light was on. Wait, back up. Had the bed been slept in? I... Paris stops. I didn't look at the bed. I saw the bathroom light and headed straight there. Was the bathroom door open or closed? Open, about halfway. When I got closer, I saw him in the tub. And what exactly did you see? Paris takes a breath and closes her eyes. She can see Jimmy lying in the bathtub. He's wearing shorts and a t-shirt, his head leaning to one side at an awkward angle. His eyes are open. One arm dangles over the rim of the tub, which is half full of red water. Except it's not just water. It's blood. So much blood. He was in the tub. To her own ears, Paris's voice sounds distant. It looked like he was dead, but I couldn't be sure. I rushed over and pressed on his wrist and then his neck. There was no pulse. His skin felt cool to the touch. And there was screaming, so much screaming, coming from her. Elsie closes her eyes briefly. Could you tell how he died? No. There was too much blood in the tub to see. And then what did you do? I tried to lift him up. Elsie looks up from her notepad. Why? I know it doesn't make sense, but I didn't want to leave him in there. Paris looks away. But he was so heavy, and I couldn't get a good grip. When I tried to pull him out, he slipped, and the bathwater splashed everywhere, all over the floor, all over me. What did you do then? I felt my foot touch something, and when I looked down, I caught a glimpse of something shiny. I bent down to pick it up, and then I must have slipped, because I don't remember anything after that. The report says you hit your head. I guess so. Paris touches the butterfly bandage on her forehead. All I know is that when I woke up, my face was on the floor and the sun was up. There was blood everywhere. Someone was screaming and I heard my name. I sat up and saw that there were police officers standing just outside the bathroom. When I tried to stand, the officers immediately drew their guns. The report says you were holding a straight razor. I didn't realize it until they told me. Paris looks at Elsie. One of the officers said, Mrs. Peralta, please put the weapon down. And I looked down and saw the razor in my hand. I tried to explain that it wasn't a weapon, that it was just one of Jimmy's straight razors, but the words wouldn't come. The report says you were waving it around. 
Elsie raises an eyebrow. The word they used was brandishing. For God's sake, that wasn't my intention, Paris says helplessly. I understand that's probably what it looked like. My head was pounding and I was having a hard time hearing them because Zoe wouldn't stop screaming. When they said drop the razor, I did. But they were still staring at me like I was something out of a horror movie. That's when I saw myself in the mirror. I looked like Carrie at the prom. What happened next? One of the officers told me to turn around slowly. He handcuffed me, read me my rights. When they led me out of the bedroom, Zoe was at the bottom of the stairs still screaming at me, asking how I could have done it, how I could have murdered Jimmy. And then the detective said, Mrs. Peralta, did you murder your husband? And you said? I said, I don't remember. Elsie sighs, the lines in her forehead deepening. Not the greatest choice of words. It's just what slipped out. Paris can hear the desperation in her own voice. Elsie, I think Jimmy killed himself. I know that probably sounds crazy, but it actually doesn't. Elsie puts her pen down and meets Paris's gaze. I just never thought he'd try it again. Paris's mouth drops open. Again? He never told you? No, he did not. He only ever told me about the overdoses. It was a long time ago, about a year after the Prince of Poughkeepsie ended, not long after his mother died. Elsie's eyes are moist. He left a suicide note and everything. I'm actually not surprised he didn't tell you. He was deeply ashamed of it. He was hospitalized for a week. We managed to keep it out of the press. That was a rough time. I didn't see a note. I'll make sure the forensic team knows to look for one. Elsie's face is impossible to read as she jots it down on her pad. But I'm going to level with you, Paris. It looks bad. Without witnesses or a suicide note, they can probably make a case for murder. His femoral artery was severed. They are going to say that's an unusual place for him to cut himself, because it is. Paris slumps. But we do have one good thing on our side, Elsie says. But before she can tell Paris what that is, the officer is back. Both women look up as the cell door opens again. Detective Kellogg will meet you in room three, he says. Elsie packs up her briefcase. Answer all her questions unless I direct you not to, in which case you stop talking immediately. Got it. As they follow the officer down the hallway, Paris's hands begin to shake. It's finally beginning to sink in. Jimmy is really dead. He won't be home when she gets there. He won't ask her if she's in the mood to cook anything for dinner or whether he should grill salmon or steak. He won't kiss the top of her head and say, I'm good with whatever you want, babe. Paris's husband might not have been her greatest love. That honor still belongs to someone she knew years ago, in a different life, when she was a very different person. But Jimmy Peralta was the love of this life, the one she built from the ashes of her old one. 
she chokes back a sob just as they reach room three. A voice floats through her mind then, always the unwanted intruder, forever the snake in her brain that uncoils at the worst possible times. You're absolutely useless. Stop your crying before I smack the shit out of you again. To hear the rest of Things We Do in the Dark by Jennifer Hillier, order the audiobook wherever books and audiobooks are sold. And tune in next week to hear an interview with the author, Jennifer Hillier.